I want to take a little bit of time, and if I would give what I usually like to do on New Year's Eve, is look back and look ahead. As I look back in 2014, the big story is our sister going to heaven. And there's been a lot of, a lot of rearranging as the pieces of the puzzle come together. But what I'm going to do this evening is going to, I'm going to ask you to follow along with me as I read this article called Things to Come. And I'm going to explain a little bit about dominionism and kingdom now theology and what we see happening currently in the church. And I'm sharing it in the form of a warning of uh, certain trends that have entered into the church that the Bible clearly talks about. But there's so much that's going on that I read this article. I said I haven't read too many lengthy articles on um, studies in eschatology of last day things where I'm in 100% agreement. But I have to say, with Rapture Ready and uh, Pete Garcia, that I am 100% in agreement with his um, scenario of uh, the chronology of events as we are here at the end of 2014, after 67 years after the regathering of the nation of Israel. What will be good about us reading through this tonight is you'll be able to take it home with you and uh, use it, hopefully, um, for your own personal study, there's going to be places in here where, for further information, you can actually click on it. So at this time, and before we um, show this update with um, Carol, Chris Katana from Calvary Cyprus is on there quite a bit. And, um, but I want to begin by going through this article on things to come. So if you have it, just follow along with me and bear with my voice as as we make our way through this several-page article. Things to come. Given that the United States, or any semblance thereof, is not mentioned in Bible prophecy, one has to take into account the how, why, and so what's of that particular implication. If the U.S. is not here, who then fills the vacuum? Who sets the precedent for a global order? What is a reserve currency, the whole world Uh, leans upon for stability in the global market. Logic and history tells us that if the U.S. isn't filling that role, someone will. How and when does the world get from the current status quo to the one in which it isn't? So it is with the outline of Bible prophecy. I am 100% certain it's when we get to into the subjections of the outline that my certainty drops to somewhere between 60 and 75%. I think the IOW is, in other words, I'm certain of the order of things, not so certain of the specifics of how those things come to pass. Here is the order. And I like them because he has them laid out, one, two, three, four, five, and six. What we don't know, and this is why... This is to be the biggest defense that we have for a pre-trib rapture, and that is the imminent rapture. As soon as you set yourself outside imminency, you have to take a mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath point of view. You no longer have the seven years that are clearly given to, to uh, Israel. And so imminency to me is very, very important. What's next on the horizon? This has to be first. The imminent rapture of the church. And then it gives the cross-references. Then, after the rapture, 
The 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9, is quoted there. Of course, uh, that is a seven-year period of time. The interesting thing with that is from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19, over and over again it tells us in different ways that it's a seven-year period of time. Sometimes it says 1,290 days. Sometimes it says 42 months. Sometimes it says three and a half years. Either way, it's dividing the number seven in half, and when you put them together, you have Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period of time. That's not a coincidence that there happens to be exactly seven years between Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation 19. That's a seven uh, um, in Revelation. Number three, the second coming. So after the tribulation, Jesus said to his disciples and those following him in Israel, he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the humbling and the breaking of Israel to where they finally get to the point after they're supernaturally protected in Revelation 12 for that three and a half year time that they do call upon the name of the Lord in a place called Basra, Petra. And it's that event that triggers the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's Revelation chapter 19. When the Lord returns, we then enter into, there, let me just stop and put something between verse number three and number four here. According to Daniel chapter 12, it gives us, it says, blessed is he who comes to the 1,335th day from the uh, second coming. There's a 45-day period of time. So between verses three and four here, the time that Jesus actually returns and establishes his kingdom, according to Matthew 25, there's a judgment of the nations. And um, the reason you would be blessed if you made it to the 135th day means that you would enter into now number four, the millennium. Uh, Some will enter into the millennium. Men will be rare after the great tribulation because of the judgments. But um, some will enter in and others will um, enter into the lake of fire. And that's Matthew chapter 25. After the thousand-year reign, number five, we have the eternal state. The Bible doesn't give us much information on that. Second Peter 3 is a reference to um, um, the elements melting with a fervent heat. Revelation 21 and 22. Um, there's a lot we don't know about after the thousand years except that we've entered into the eternal realm. Now, there are other events that must take place to which I am 100% certain of their fulfillment, but not 100% on when, and they, these are. And this is where the stage is set so interestingly right, right now in the Middle East. Number one, the utter destruction of the city of Damascus. It's the oldest inhabited city in the world. It's never been destroyed where it hasn't been inhabited again. So that has not been fulfilled. It happens to be the headquarters of terrorists in the world today, Damascus. The temporary desolation of Egypt, that's Isaiah chapter 19. 
Then we have the Gog and Magog War, of course, Ezekiel 38 and 39. I've been watching unfold for the last 40 years. After I first read Hal Lindsey's book in, in 19, or in the early 70s. And I became aware that the Bible is very, very unique. And it's the only book that actually predicts future events and have them come to fulfillment with 100% accuracy. All you have to have is one that doesn't, that it isn't fulfilled. And you can throw the whole thing away. But that isn't the case. It really challenged me as a young believer, um, the importance and significance of Bible prophecy. So the Gog-Magog War, Ezekiel 38, and then the signing of a peace covenant with the nation of Israel for a seven-year period of time. That's number four. So now the question, so where on God's timeline are we? It seems to be the reoccurring question that gets asked so often. So here is what we know as of December, I would add 31st, 2014. The United States is in an increasingly rapid state of decline, particularly in three areas, spiritually, culturally, and economically. The economic decline appears to be um, in Syncretly, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it, linked to the spiritual and cultural decline as the U.S. embraces its national post-Christian status. The U.S. economic decline is having a weakened effect on the U.S. military and our ability to project our forces on a strong image around the world. Paganism and secular humanism and a normalization of apparent sexual and cultural lifestyles and belief systems appear to be filling the void of a declining Christian worldview. And then in parentheses, just like Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, and as it was in the days of Lot. We see the revival of cultural paganism, that's neo-paganism, is in conjunction with transhumanism, which is fast becoming a reality due to the advancement and technology. The U.S. dollar is currently the world's reserve currency for the fiat system. Factors that are negatively and positively impacting that standings are. Now, you have a new list of things that are impacting current biblical trends. Number one, as it relates to our country, we are $18 trillion in debt. Now, this is my own personal study that I've been doing. I could really get sidetracked here, um, where we really, I think a lot of people have their head in the sands on just how how, uh, in dire straits we probably are as a nation. Number two, rapid changes in current technology challenging the current fiat system. Now, number three, instability in other Currencies. We're watching as we speak over the weekend, China and Russia agreeing to use their currencies instead of the dollar. That's happening as, as we speak. Number four, bus booms and general fickleness of the markets. It's over 1,800 right now. But to me, there, it's, just, it's, um, it's a lot of smokescreen going on with our market, I believe. Increasingly... A polarity in the U.S. government. Economists and heads of state are currently planning for and or 
pre-positioning themselves for the collapse of the U.S. economy. And this is where you can do your extra homework. If you go online and click on this article for Rapture Ready, it says, see here, you can do a little bit more in-depth study on what we're talking about. Global interconnectedness has reached an all-time high. And it is partly due to the dependency on the U.S. dollar system and the rise of the Internet age. The EU is continuing in its growing pains. Economic woes and a rise in nationalism seem to be equally as troubling as it is a burgeoning Muslim population or escalating Muslim population. Either way, it's not looking uh, like a good place to retire if you're a Jew, especially in France. There's a lot of anti-Semitism that's rising up, especially in France right now. He says, here's what I expect to occur due to the aftermentioned realities. Number one, uh, number 10 here, the collapse of the U.S. dollar due to the global dependency uh, on it for economic stability. It presents the perfect storm crisis that globalists need in order to bring about a new world order. Number 11, Saudi Arabia will continue its oil output in order to, number one, weaken its enemies who rely on oil reserves. Number two, destroy the U.S. fracturing uh, industry. Number 12, events are continuing to drive the world's attention back to the Middle East in respect to Iraq, Iran, and Israel, despite President Obama's best efforts. Uh, Events are compelling U.S. forces to uh, return to Iraq, something he said he would never do. I think there are two powerful forces currently fighting it out on Earth right now. now. One group wants things to stay the way they are because they are making money and living fat and happy. This would be groups like the Saudis, major energy providers, and anyone tied up with and making a healthy living under the current petrodollar fiat system. They want things to stay the same, and they use oil and other energies as an economic weapon. The other group has grander grander plans and sees the U.S. dollar's dominance as a hindrance to their globalist agenda. So they are actively working to debase the dollar and by doing so can get the world onto a new global digital currency in which they control. I imagine that these are the movers and shakers and the new technologies and multi-international corporations, politicians of all stripes, those in central banking industries and the like. And seeing as we are 18 trillion in debt, one can guess which side is currently winning. Then I like this because this is important. Then, of course, there's God, who has the first and final say in all things and his timing. And I'll just add here, he's not willing that any should perish. So I imagine the Lord's going to let it go as far as he possibly can in his long suffering. And when I suppose he just is not going to take any more, he'll call his bride home. All right, the assessment of what we've just read. My best guess, all things considered, is that we are in a five-year window awaiting major radical global realignments. Now, if you had asked me that five years ago, I would have told you the same. 
At this point, I stopped and I said, I totally agree with this guy. Because if you would have asked me five years ago if we'd be here in 2014, I would say, absolutely no way. But as I look at how things have unfolded, he goes on to say, and yet, here we are. He says, I'm no prophet. I'm only a man armed with an informed opinion. But unknown to us five years ago was that certain things had to transpire that I think will make things significantly different in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Let me just give you a for instance. Today, Mary sent me an update on the president of Turkey declaring that he wants to go to war with Israel. Now, this is, we've waited for years and years and years for Turkey to be that final piece of the puzzle to line up with the Ezekiel Magog scenario. And we said for years, don't worry about it because Turkey isn't in the, in the mix. Well, then they were. But then they were one foot in and one foot out, helping Israel, not helping Israel, friend with the U.S., not a friend. Now they're openly calling for war with Israel. That's within the last two days. So we're watching pieces of the scenario um, uh, come together very, very quickly. Now I left off with, this of course is, the Lord has his final say. Um, I read, I'm no prophet, I'm only an armed man with an opinion. I read about five uh, years ago, uh, the certain things had to transpire that they will make things significantly different in the days and weeks and months ahead. All right. These black swan events will have to play out in the next few years. Number one, Israel is no longer interested or invested in playing the two-state solution game. They've been trying this for the past 21 years, and it has utterly failed each time. Israel realizes that it can no longer depend on the U.S. for its Iranian problem and realizes that their window for stopping Iran's ambition, its nuclear program, is quickly coming to close And even with the 2016 elections, that may be too late. Events are going to force Israel to act unilaterally. If Russia risks military incursions into Georgia, Ukraine, and Crimea before their financial woes, imagine what President Putin will do when his country's economy is in freefall. Now, let me just stop and give current events, what's, what I'm hearing on radio today. Um, people are calling in from around the country and says, well, gas prices here just went below $2, what, buck ninety-nine, And all of a sudden, a gal calls from somewhere in Maryland. She says, we got that beat, buck seventy. And they're flooding, the market's being flooded right now, and it's putting an incredible amount of pressure on Russia. And so what it says here, imagine... Um, I got in my side note here, what would Putin do if his country uh, economy went into free fall? And I put in the margin there, hook and jaw, question mark. Now, if you don't know what that means, Ezekiel 38, verse 1 and 2 says, I am against the Ogog, chief prince of Rosh and Magog. And he says, I'm going to put a hook in your mouth, and I'm going to bring you down in the latter days into the land of Israel. Have been, re, have been regathered from the nation. And so we've wondered, all my ministry, 40 years, uh, what's the hook? And at different times I've speculated what the hook could be or might be. But I've never seen the escalation exponentially, just recently, especially with China and Russia agreeing to do business apart from the dollar. 
And uh, the war that's going on right now is an economic one. And it could be a hook that actually forces, I like the wording here, Putin, what will he do if he's in free fall? You know, these guys trotting around with his shirt off, showing how macho he is, and just uh, bring it on type attitude. And uh, that's pretty much where he's at. And so he's sort of, you know, Clint Eastwood, make my day, buddy. If if you do that, bring it on. And that's exactly the attitude that that hook, I'm not sure if I want to do this, but it doesn't look like they have a choice. All right, number four. The U.S. is significantly weakened, weaker than it was during the last financial crisis of 2008. Echoes of 1928-29 keep um, being rehashed in the news. And it is possible that another stock market collapse will effectively do what two what 208 could not um, could not rehash in the news. Oh, could not, period. Number five, President Obama has and is continuing to rule through executive legislation that seems intent on dividing and weakening the U.S. Our president has got done away with our Constitution and uh, is making it up as he goes. The upcoming 2016 elections may prove the most contentious yet, depending on whether President Obama and the Democrats intend to go quietly into the night or have a few tricks left up their sleeve. They can't be too thrilled with the prospect of a Republican, I just put the word monopoly in there, in the last 100 years has seen more transitions, tragedy, and changes than the rest of recorded history. Paganism insists on all things continuing on cynically, but according to the scriptures, there was a beginning and there will also be an end. Logically speaking, if the United States is the lone economic and military superpower in the world and we do not warrant a mention by either name or type in the pages of the Holy Scriptures, uh, whenever that end may be, then that means that something happens to us that makes us a non-factor in the final outline of things to come. And if the U.S. isn't taking the lead, then someone has to because nature abhors a vacuum. We know, according to Scripture, that someone comes out of a revived Roman Empire who ends up controlling the whole earth, Daniel chapter 2, also Daniel chapter 9, and Revelation 13. Last paragraph here is called The Terminal Generation. This I find interesting. Good insight on the writer's part here. The Holy Spirit moved Moses to contribute one psalm to the collection we have in the Old Testament. Now, we're going through the psalms right now. There's 150 of them. We're in the 70s. And um, one of the psalms was written by Moses. It is Psalm 90. And Moses lived to be 120 years old, and he was still vigorous in mind, spirit, and strength. Uh, But he said in Psalm 90, verse 10, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Now, in context, 
Moses was speaking to the brevity and frailty of man's life. When answering the question the disciples put forth to Jesus about the last days, Jesus caps off the numerous indicators with the parable of the fig tree. Yet the point of the parable isn't an attempt to define the length of a generation, but to pin that generation who sees the aftermentioned signs in Matthew 24 to the length of the average man's life. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also. When you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Is it coincidence that Israel is alluded to numerous places in the Old Testament as figs or as a fig tree. Judges, Song of Solomon, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, Zechariah, Luke, Mark. Is it coincidence that Jesus links the budding of a tree associated with uh, national Israel as being the one sign that some future generation, i.e. this one, would see and not pass away? Is it a coincidence that Jesus states Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the age of the Gentiles has come to an end? Is it coincidence that the only psalm Moses penned happened to discuss, discuss the lifespan of a man being 70 to 80 years, when he himself lived to be 120? Is it a coincidence that Jesus, being God, would know that we would come to these same conclusions some 2,000 years later, right about the time of all these fulfillments. I do not believe in coincidences. I'll read that again. I do not believe in coincidences. And according to the scriptures, God doesn't either. God orchestrated kings and kingdoms to accomplish his will and in his time. That's what the whole book of Daniel is about. He, he, He... marched him off during Nebuchadnezzar's time. He says, after you, meet a Persia. After meet a Persia, Grecian. After Grecian, Roman. And then at the end of times, we'd have the revived Roman Empire. The Lord raised them up, and the Lord takes them down. Now the conclusion of the article. At the current rate, things cannot remain status quo. I don't believe that all the signs and events listed above prove a rapture. What I do believe is that they point to the signs of the coming seven-year period of time commonly referred to as a tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble is another one. Daniel's 70th week is another. I believe that due to the increasing geopolitical and economic turmoil we are seeing in the world that we are exactly in the final moments, the death throes of the times of the Gentiles, hence the uptick in global turmoil. The final moments of the times of the Gentiles has to coincide with Israel already being back in her land, which occurred on May of 1948. May is significant because that is when the early fruit, the good fruits, first bud, because the Jews had to have Israel back as a nation before they could be attacked in the Six-Day War, that would be 67, 
which resulted in them recapturing Jerusalem. The Jews have to be in control of Jerusalem again in order to one day rebuild the future Jewish temple, foretold in Matthew, also 2 Thessalonians 2. All of that is colliding with the fact that they have been back as a nation going on 67 years. Coincidence? The Bible is clear that we will not know the day or the hour of the Lord's return. Big but here, the Apostle Paul did say we would recognize the season, or might I say the generation. And just like one can know by looking at a calendar when roughly winter or summer should begin, we don't know exactly until we start seeing and feeling the changes. I believe that over the last 100 years, we have increasingly seen the signs, and we can know with 100% confidence that we're in the season of the Lord's return. And then he closes with 1 Thessalonians 5, which I probably would have too. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not sons of uh, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. I commend you for coming out on New Year's Eve when most of the world is partying hardy, and uh, you're here. Uh, because usually our tradition is to give a prophecy update. What I want to um, leave you with tonight before I leave and we show this 35-minute presentation from White as a Gate is um, just tackle one of these issues and give you the pros and the cons. I feel as a pastor that part of my job is to watch over the flock, to feed the flock, to care for the flock, but also to point out false doctrine and false teaching. What I would want to refer to tonight is a term that's called dominion theology. Sometimes it's called kingdom now theology. And um, basically, there's two camps um, that we're going to present here that I just want us to be aware of as we watch the church at large Look at the times that we're living right now through two very different lenses. Those who are dominionists, which will be exposed in the Wide and the Gate presentation, believe that through the preaching of the gospel that the world will become better and better. By the way, while I'm saying this, I'm going to have you turn to um, uh, 2 Timothy 3. So just turn there. Dominionists basically believe that after the world has been evangelized, the world in which we live will become better and better. And when the church has done its work, the Lord can come and then reign over his kingdom because the bride has been faithful. They've taken dominion over the earth. And that's where we get the terminology dominionism. And it'll be a 
explained uh, in more detail, and you may or not be aware that um, uh, some of the terminology that's um, going to be uh, thrown around in our uh, presentation now is the New Apostolic Reformation, N-A-R. And you're going to hear that over and over again, N-A-R, the New Apostolic Reformation. Well, that's a branch of what's on a lot of uh, prosperity doctrine teaching that you're going to, uh, that's out there today. But what I would take issue with is what does the Bible say we're to look for as signs in the last days? Jesus said in Matthew 24 that before his coming, that unless he directly intervenes in world history, no flesh should be saved. It doesn't sound to me that the world is getting better and better and better and better, but he says unless he intervenes that no flesh should be saved. Now if you're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy says, Timothy know this, that in the last days perilous times are going to come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. They'll be disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good. They'll be traitors. They'll be headstrong. They'll be haughty. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness, but deny its power from such turn away. For this sort are those who creep into households and make captivity of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts. Always learning, I love this verse, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambri resisted Moses, so do they resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, Disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifested to all as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance, my persecutions and afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured... And out of them, the Lord delivered me them all. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Verse 13 is important. In the last days, because that's where it started, verse 1 says, in the last days, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the Bible teaches that in the last days, it's not going to get better and better, and revival and we're going to evangelize the world so the Lord can come back. That's dominionism. The Bible teaches that in the last days, it's going to wax. Interesting. Everybody's had a candle, right? It, when it cools, it just slowly gets, slowly gets hard, and it hardens. And that's what he's liking it to. will wax uh, worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And now, in a word of encouragement with all the, the reality of what we're looking ahead of us but as for you and here's our challenge for 2015 and hopefully some some words of encouragement continuing the things which you've learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise 
for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be a complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible says about what's going to happen in the last days. If you leave here tonight a little bit better equipped for 2015, then it will not have been a wasted New Year's Eve for you. Many a person tonight is going to wake up tomorrow morning with a very bad headache, wondering what they did last night. And I hope and pray on a serious note that this New Year's, I I do wish you a, a very happy New Year, but that you leave here a little bit better equipped, knowing what's out there and what the Bible teaches about the new apostolic reformation and what the Bible teaches as we enter into what I would call seeing the finish line and the race that's set before us. Amen. I always stand up. We'll close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for my brother Chris and Carol and the friendships and the love that we have for them and one another. Thank you for the insight that you've given to them. Lord, as you've told us in these days to be discerning, to be wise, and as you admonish Timothy to remain in those things that we've learned from the beginning. And as Pastor Chuck so often told us, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. Lord, we just pray that we keep that in our heart, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you do have your plans from beginning to end. You are the Alpha and you are the Omega. We thank you for your word, Lord, and the stability it gives us and tells us what to watch out for. So, Lord, I just pray you bless these that came out on this very chilly, cold Wisconsin evening. You bless them, Lord, as we now break up for fellowship. And, Lord, go before us the rest of this night. We pray that you would equip us, Lord, and use us in 2015. And we thank you for what you've done in 2014. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy New Year.